Today's scripture reading is from Acts 13, chapters 40 through 52. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 789 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For, the so, so, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Thank you, bud, for doing that for us. You know, one of the beautiful themes in the Scriptures is this fact. God delights in doing the unexpected. God is faithful, but not always very predictable. Our God is a God of surprises. We see it in the Christmas story, really. Don't you think about it? Who could have predicted that the Messiah would be born to an unmarried Galilean girl? I mean, we know it in retrospect, but you could never have known that ahead of time, and yet that's exactly uh, what happened. Who could have predicted that the Messiah's birth, that when God finally fulfilled His promise to the ages, that it would go unnoticed by virtually everyone? And who could have predicted that the heavenly announcement of His birth would be made to simply a few hillside shepherds? Who could have predicted that people would come from far away to see this king? The only people who really recognized him as a king were people way outside of Jerusalem. And who could have expected that the Messiah would be born to a family so poor that when they made their sacrifice at the temple when Jesus was circumcised, they would give a pair of turtle doves, not a lamb, the sacrifice of the poorest of the poor. Jesus was, grew up in a very poor family. Who could have predicted that the Messiah would grow up in the town of Nazareth? Probably a little burg of less than 500 people. Think about that. A little burg of less than 500 people, nondescript, backwoods as backwoods goes, so that when someone first was said, we found the Messiah, he keys Jesus of Nazareth, 
Nathaniel, who became a disciple, later said, Nazareth? What good could come from Nazareth? Nazareth was not <laughs> a place with a great reputation. This Christmas story is filled with many unexpected and surprising events. We have an unbelievable God, a surprising God, a God who does things we wouldn't expect. And yet, it's not uh, just the Christmas story where we see this. It's all the way through the Bible, really. From the beginning of time, even until today, it seems as though God is a God who delights in doing the unexpected, the unbelievable, the unanticipated, the surprising thing. For example, this is the God who called a childless couple far beyond the years of childbearing. Their names were Abraham and Sarah. And these were the people through whom God would build a great nation. Now, that's a surprise, wouldn't you say? This is the God who defied convention by continually overlooking the firstborn of the family and blessing instead someone else. It was Isaac, not Ishmael, who received God's blessing. It was Jacob, not Israel, uh, uh, not Ishmael, who received God's blessing. Esau, I'm sorry. Jacob, not Esau, who received God's blessing, the secondborn. It was Judah, the fourth, uh, the fourthborn, not Reuben, who received God's blessing. I mean, there are examples all the way through the Bible of God doing something you wouldn't expect. I could go on and on with examples of this. You think we get the idea that while God is faithful, He's not always predictable. It's important for us to realize that we should never grow so rigid in our perception of how things are that we cannot see it when God decides to do something new and unexpected. And I'm convinced that in our lives, He often wants to do something new, something unexpected, something we hadn't looked forward to in a way we hadn't anticipated it. It's been true throughout history. And in fact, the Bible even says that God does this. Listen to what, what Isaiah said in the 42nd chapter, the ninth verse. He said, Behold, this is the Lord speaking in the, through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the, the, thing, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you them. See, this is Isaiah talking about what will happen in the future for Israel, that God is going to do some new things in their future. Someday he'll do something brand new. And he says it again in the 43rd chapter, in the 19th verse. He says to them, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And in Isaiah's prophecy, where we're to look at that, chapters 40 through 55, fantastic portion of Scripture, we see that what God is saying is that He is going to send a servant and that someday He would bring a new heavens and a new earth, that there would become deliverance to these people, that it would come. It would be new. It would be unexpected. One thing shouldn't surprise us in our lives. We follow a God who does the unexpected, who does things we wouldn't have anticipated, who uses us in ways we wouldn't think we could be used. Like Moses, who had no gifts of speaking, we would lead great people. Like Joseph, who got sold into slavery, we'd begin become the deliverer of, of people. Like Abraham, who had no children, we'd become the father of a great nation. Something God wants to do is often unexpected, unanticipated, in our lives. It was true in the Old Testament. It was true with the birth of Jesus. It was true as the church began to expand, and it's even true today. After all, what if someone had said to you two years ago that in December 2014, you'd be going to church in a saloon? <laughs> or the backside of a saloon, right? Who could have thought that a couple of years ago, that on this day, you'd actually go to the buffalo chip to church? 
Who would think that? It's not expected. Don't you find that kind of surprising? God has a way of doing things we wouldn't expect. The mere existing of the, the excuse me, the mere existence of this church, the church of the chip, should cause us to expect the unexpected from God. We have to keep our eyes open to new things, unexpected things God is doing. I mean, think about it. Chances are there are some pretty surprising and unexpected things which ultimately led to your being here today for worship. Oh, you may have thought of them as coincidences, people you met, encounters you had, things that you saw. But there are no coincidences in God's economy, right? It's all providential. And it's all, I think, very surprising. You know, some of you are here today because a waitress recommended you visited the Campfire Christmas Eve service last year. Isn't that right, Susan? That's how you heard about us. Others of you might have said, I'm going to go to that church on Christmas Eve, and now you can't quit. Here you are, all right? Some of you are here because you dreamed about a church sign with the unusual name Ecclesia. came in your mind. You'd seen it, right? Yeah. Some of you are here today because my wife got the notion that the JW Marriott should offer water exercise classes about five or six years ago or eight years ago. We went um, to stay at a timeshare by the JW Marriott that someone gave us as a gift. And while we were there, she looked around at all the activities that were there. She had been doing water exercises for many years. And she noticed there were no water exercise classes there at the timeshare for the JW Marriott. So she went to the people there and said, you know, I teach water exercise classes, and if you'd like, I'd be happy to do it for you. And so they talked about it, and before long, she was teaching them not only there, but also at the JW Marriott. Are you glad that she did that, Janice? Yes. Because some of you are here. In fact, the connections between that. Are you guys glad that she did that? Right? I mean, there's half a dozen people or more who were here either directly or down the generation because I'm sorry, I, you know. It was our 35th anniversary on Friday, not of the day we got engaged. So I'm kind of emotional about that, you know. You know, my wife works behind the scenes, doesn't like to be in front of things, but, you know, there are a lot of you who are here today specifically because of her. And uh, that's unexpected, you know. And God has worked in your life in a way that you wouldn't have anticipated You know, some of you are here today because one of our church members wrote an article about our church for Images AZ magazine. Isn't that right, Bill? Yeah. Yeah. And all of you are here today because of a failed church planter who got the crazy notion that perhaps maybe God was asking him to lay aside his excuses and go ahead and try to start a church in, of all places, a saloon in Cave Creek. Yeah. Church of the Chip and your presence here is a living, breathing example of the truth that Bud read for you. I am going to do, in verse 41 of this text, I am going to to do a work in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told it to you. That's the way the one version says it. I am going to, our version says, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you unbelievable. We serve an unbelievable, unexpected God. In this text of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is trying to get people to believe the unbelievable, to, to, to understand some things which are difficult to understand. In this text today, we're, he shows up in a, a gathering, a worship gathering, 
And he tries to help these devoted Christ followers, the devoted followers of God, to understand that the long story which began with Abraham and went through uh, Moses and went through David now had reached its climax and its fulfillment in the people, in the person of Jesus Christ, who became a crucified criminal, but a resurrected Savior, and who was a Savior not just for the nation of Israel, but even for the whole world. It was an unbelievable thing. And the Apostle Paul quoted Habakkuk 1, verse 5, as evidence of that. When he said, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Well, I'd like you to think with me today about three of the surprising things that God does in this text and in our lives. The first thing that I want you to note, and I hope it will be encouragement for you, is this. The first thing that God does that's unexpected and almost unbelievable is that God brings good from evil. God brings good out of evil. And we would learn from this that no situation is hopeless. No situation is hopeless. The Apostle Paul, when he's talking to that group of, uh, that gathered, that people's group of people gathered there in that synagogue, quotes, as I said, from the book of Habakkuk, who is a small prophet found near the end of your Old Testament. You may never have read his story, but it's worth reading. Habakkuk was a devout, God-fearing Israelite and was very concerned about the waywardness of his people. And he prayed in the first few verses of that prophecy, the Habakkuk 1, Lord, would you please do something to get our people back on the right track? Would you please step in and do something? In fact, let me just read it for you instead of paraphrasing it for you. Ooh, this is a risk. Can I find Habakkuk in the middle of my Bible? Um, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Is that how it goes? Yes. All right. Here's the, it says the oracle that Habakkuk, and this is what Paul quotes to these um, devout people who would have known this text. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you of violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He's looking at his people. He's saying they don't honor the law. There's violence. There's strife. It sounds like he described the United States in the last week or two, right? He's saying it's just not going like it should. He's praying for that. And then the Lord answers him in the next, in the next section. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's the text that Paul quotes. But then the Lord goes on to say, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize their dwellings, not their own. In other words, he's going on to say, Habakkuk, I'm going to answer your prayer by bringing those rotten old Chaldeans into uh, uh, Jerusalem to teach you guys the lessons. In fact, this is the prophecy one of many would said that the Babylonians would come in and would conquer the people of Israel, ultimately lead them to exile. When Habakkuk hears that, he is horrified. Lord, how can this be? 
They're even worse than us, he says. He says in the 12th verse of that first chapter, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? We shall not die. Lord, you have obtained a judgment, and you, O Lord, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's saying, I know we're bad. And I wanted you to do something about it. But now with those guys, they're even worse. And God goes on to tell them, yes, they will receive their punishment, but they will be a tool in my hand so that my people can uh, ultimately follow me. And in fact, they did. You see, there's a theme in Scripture that even though evil comes into our lives, God can bring good from evil. And that no situation is ultimately hopeless. That's what Habakkuk And ultimately, he said, I will trust you even if I don't understand you. And the Apostle Paul used that quote. We've seen it all through the Bible. Joseph, if you remember, was thrown into a castaway by his brothers, and his brothers came back to Egypt ultimately under Joseph's protection. They were afraid that Joseph would wreak vengeance on them ultimately. And Joseph said late in his life, friends, you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. You see, we serve a God who can bring good out of even the most difficult and evil of situations. Even Jesus himself experienced the greatest evil of all, sacrificed unjustly, and yet God brought good out of it. That's why Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things God works together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, I know that All of us, at one point or another, have experienced some really difficult things in our lives. We've been injured by someone. An illness has come into our life. A a problem has come into our life. Uh, Terrible things happen to us sometimes. The good message of God is this, that even when we experience a very difficult situation, God can bring good to us in the middle of that. And so when the Apostle Paul quotes that, he's alluding to that issue there in the 13th chapter of Acts. God was going to bring good even out of the evil uh, 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 attack of the Babylonians because this would be the means by which the people of Israel would finally learn to follow him. So we might ask ourselves before we move on to the next point, the questions such as these, what good thing does God want to do in my difficult situation? I'm sure that many of you, if you look back on your life, you'd say, yeah, that was horrific what I went through but God brought good out of it. What good thing does God want to do in my difficult situation right here and right now? And will I choose to trust God in the midst of that difficult situation? When Habakkuk listened to what the Lord had to say in their conversations, a short book in the third chapter, he says, even if the fruit never comes on the vine, even if nothing ever turns out good, I will trust you. Some of us need to make that decision and say, Lord, I know this is not a hopeless situation. God can bring good out of evil. That's the first thing that God does. Only God can do that. God can bring good out of evil. The second thing that we want to see is found a few verses later, and that is this, that the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for people like me. The gospel is for everyone, not just for people like me. The apostle Paul quotes at the 13th chapter uh, another text out of the, uh, excuse me, Page is flown away here, but um, also uh, this this chapter comes out of Isaiah as well, and he says, "I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth." 
the apostle, or excuse me, Isaiah, when he wrote, uh, is saying that I will make you a light for the nations that you will, that salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And the apostle Paul quotes that. He wants these devout Jewish people to realize that the good news about God's deliverance wasn't just for them, but it was for everyone. And as I said, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 49 when he says it. And in fact, this verse is actually quoted by Simeon in, in, in the story about Jesus. When Simeon is in the temple and Jesus is taken to the temple in Luke chapter 2, it says about Simeon, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. These texts remind us, and Simeon remembered it when he prayed for that little baby, that God's plan wasn't just for Israel, but God's plan was for the whole world, that Israel was to be the means by which God would rescue the whole world. God's plan has always been to bless Israel so Israel can bless the world. It's as old as the promise to Abraham when God said to him, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. But this was a threat to the Jewish way of life, to their identity. Think about it. They're in that synagogue. They're in Antioch. And they're a, they're a minority. They're an oppressed minority. And for generations, they had sought to maintain a separate, distinct identity. They had been marked out as different from everybody else. Their Sabbath observance made them different. Their dietary laws made them different. Circumcision made them different. They were glad that Gentiles came to their synagogue meetings. They loved having God-fearers among them. They were proud of their witness of these people, and they were delighted if they would fully convert to their faith. But Paul was telling something different. He was preaching that Gentiles could be welcomed by God without first becoming Jews. They would think, what about the Sabbath? What about the food laws? What about circumcision? What about generations of persecution and isolation that they had suffered over these things? And so here we see the beginning of a conflict which may very well have killed the church, and it's centered around this question. Is the gospel bound to a particular ethnic group or not? Is the gospel bound to the Jewish identity or not? Does the gospel only makes sense if people become like me? The answer is no. When Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning, a brand new humanity was born. It was neither a Jew nor a female, but God had brought all of them together under Him. You see, the gospel tells us that Jesus brought together all new, a whole new humanity. It was neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. No one has the upper hand. No one has the inside track. That's why Galatians says we are all one in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians says he made one new man in place of the two. And while I think I'm boring you with this, trust me, we are just as guilty of that in our white American culture of thinking that Christianity is about us. We want people to be like us. We want people to be, uh, we want them, as long as they become like us, we've got to be very careful that we don't make the gospel tied up in our own cultural uh, bondage. The Jews were guilty of that. They were, they were fine if the Gentiles would become Jews first, but they didn't like the fact that they would become different than themselves. You see, 
God wants to make one new man out of it. I need to be careful that I don't so closely identify my faith in Jesus with my ethnic heritage or my political point of view or my national citizenship or all these things. It's so easy to think that what we need to do is get people to be like us. No, we've got a, a, a citizenship which goes beyond that. You know, I have a brother in in Michigan, and I have a brother in Tempe, and I have a sister in San Diego. We live all across this country, but there's something that unites us that's deeper than the states we happen to live in, and it is the blood which makes us united as brother and sister to one another. In the same way, Christians need to understand that we're all united all across the land, all across the country, all across time. We are united together because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Yeah. So we need to ask ourselves some questions. How does God want to use me to bless someone very different than myself? How does God want to use me to cross a boundary? To, to listen. One of the problems that we have I, in our culture is we're so quick to talk and so short to listen. What does the Bible say? Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak. When you see people very different than yourselves rioting, ask yourself, why? Listen. Listen first. Listen. I'm not saying we have to condone everything that happens, but we need to listen. Listen. Jesus reached across barriers. As St. Francis of Assisi said, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Yeah, we need to be sure that God uses us to reach across boundaries, to make sure that our heritage doesn't get in the way of our faith. And that's what happened for them in those days. Their heritage had gotten in the way of their faith, and it was surprising to them. There was a new humanity being born, and in many ways, the result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just that individuals got saved, but that a new humanity was created. Yes. Well, the third, the third surprising thing that we see in this text is this, is that eternal life is for here and now. Eternal life is for here and now. And then related to that, it is not merely a pass, a free pass into heaven. It's twice in this text of Scripture, we see it in the, 40, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the 46th and the 48th verse. I'll read it for you. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And in verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, when you and I hear the word eternal life, we're conditioned to think of it this way. At least that's the way I've mostly thought about it. Eternal life means that you get something which you ultimately will receive at a future time in some sort of heavenly disembodied place with God. It's going, making sure you get to heaven when you die, that that's what eternal life is. But that is only a small part of what eternal life really is. The word eternal life really means the life. This is a quote from F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator on this text. Eternal life means, quote, the life of the age to come. That is the resurrection age. He says, in Christ, however, this life may be possessed and enjoyed here and now as God's free gift. It is Christ's own resurrection, life shared by Him with those who have believed in Him. 
See, he's teaching us that when Jesus rose from the grave, when Jesus rose up on Easter morning, a new chapter in the world history began. The life of the age began. And, and so a new period of history, when everything would be put right, what was happening at last, the age to come had already begun when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. It won't be finished until the last day, our ultimate resurrection and the restoration of all things when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, when God does for everyone what He did for Jesus on Easter day, but we now are part of that as God has given to us His Holy Spirit. We're able to share in the resurrection the life of the age right here, right now. Eternal life is not merely a future promise. It is a present reality. We're called to be, as we say in our church, living witnesses of God's new creations in Christ Jesus by becoming a community of faith and love and hope. Eternal life is not just something that we check a ticket so we pray a prayer so that someday we get it down the road. Eternal life is a present blessing that we can have because of the Spirit of God which is within us. We're called to live differently. We're called to be a different kind of people than the people around us. This has implications as we see the various isms of our world today. The materialism which is rampant in our culture, we want to live a different way. The sensualism, which is all over and around us, you can't avoid it. We want to honor our sexuality in a way differently than the way it is abused in our culture. And yes, even as I mentioned, even the racial boundaries that grow up, we need to be people who are peacemakers, who bring people together. Jesus does not just save us from the world. He saves us for the world to become like Jesus in our world as we go to work, as we relate to our families, as we relate as neighbors, to be the new creation that God ultimately will create at the end of time right here and right now. So we see that eternal life is not just someday in the future, but it is right here and right now. And so we can ask ourselves maybe a few questions about that. Is my faith only an insurance policy against the future? Or has it become a new way of living, a new way of being, a way of uh, being more fundamentally human, spirit-filled in the way that God wants for us to be? And what does it mean, we might ask ourselves some questions, to live like new creation in my family, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, with my entertainments, in my Christmas celebration. Yes. You see, there are some unbelievable things that God did, and we are the beneficiaries of that. We began to realize years ago that the gospel was not just for one ethnic group, but for all ethnic groups, and you and I are the beneficiaries of that. We be know because of the death of Jesus Christ that no evil will ultimately conquer our lives. We can have hope even in the most dire of situations. And we can begin to live the reality of the future kingdom right here and right now as we respond in faith to Jesus Christ. The question is, what does God, what unbelievable thing does God want to do in my life? What is it that God wants me to do. I'm convinced that we sell God way too short. He wants to make radical changes and a difference in our lives. He's already done that, I'm sure, in many ways, but He continues to do that 
in unexpected ways. And if we ever wonder about that, all we have to do is think about the Christmas story. The Christmas story. When God came to a little girl, betrothed to be married, and said, by the way, I've got something special for you. And she said what we should say to God when he comes to us. Be it unto me according to your word. Be it unto me according to your word. Let's say that to God as we close. Lord Jesus, when we gather here this morning, we often are unaware of just how uh, interested you are in making just radical change and good in our lives. Some of us here are stuck in the middle of a bad past. Evil has been done to us. We have been harmed. And we've been blaming you, blaming others, blaming ourselves, wallowing in pity. And we want to say, Lord, bring good out of a difficult situation. Bring healing to my heart. Help me to find you in the midst of how difficult this is. That's our prayer. Others of us here today may have found ourselves a little just way too self-absorbed. We do way too little listening. We're divisive in the way we talk about people who are different than ourselves. We're quick to criticize and to judge. We think we know what's going on in the car in front of us when he's too slow. Maybe we should realize what that says about the way we think. Help us to... Help us to be people who are peacemakers. Help us to break down divides in this fractured and divided world. The Christmas story reminds us that you came to bring peace on earth. Help us to be part of that peaceful people. And help us also to realize that Eternal life is not just a future insurance policy, but it's something to be lived right now. Father, we're tired of living less than our full potential. Help us to be responsive to you even as Mary was. That little girl, when she said, be it unto me according to your word. Help us to trust you for good in our life, even if it's hard for us to imagine how it could be. May today be the day that turns a corner for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.